Again, our Father, we delight to sing praises to you. Such joy there is in the knowledge of Christ. Such joy there is to know that for all who have trusted in you, who know the reality of every promise in you, Christ, being yes and amen, guaranteed in the resurrection, affirmed to us in your word. We gather now to hear you speak, instruct us, teach us, help us to walk in righteousness, help us to glorify and honor you through the unity that we have or that we display together, that unity that we share because of our union with you by the Spirit, that spiritual reality that is reflected in our lives and our gathering together that the world can see and may know that we are indeed your people. And so we ask you to accomplish these things in us for your everlasting glory, and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Uh, For those who aren't usually with us, We've been taking a break for the last, I don't know, maybe two months or so and will to the end of the year, just looking at different topics before we begin another book that will occupy us for who knows how long, depending how, depends on how long the book is. We'll try to do better than eight years, though, uh, this next time, but nonetheless. We've been looking at the topic recently of our unity in Christ, and we did a couple of weeks looking at the theology of our unity, namely how our unity as John taught us in John 17, is a reflection of the very unity of the Godhead and particularly the unity that was displayed in Christ during his time here on earth is to be the kind of unity that we reflect in our own gathering together, that we reflect as the body of Christ. We then turned to the book of Ephesians to teach us how to walk in this kind of unity, how we are to preserve this unity, how we are to display this unity as the people of God. And of course, Paul didn't slack off on the theology of unity either. In fact, the very heart of his ministry was this great mystery of the Jew and the Gentile together in the one body of Christ. God's people no longer identified by national distinctives, even the old covenant of circumcision and the temple and the priesthood and so forth. But now a people identified through their relationship, through their union, the spiritual reality of being connected to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul unfolds that in the first few chapters of Ephesians. He says that we are now Jew and Gentile together in the one body of Christ, and we both together together have our access in one spirit to the Father. We are indeed the people of God. And so this unity is that we have in Christ, that we have by the Spirit, this access that we have together to the Father, is essential to the reality of our redemption, to of our redemption. There is no Christian who is not in union with Christ. Indeed, the new covenant, again, as Paul said, in the mystery of the new covenant, in the book of Colossians, is Christ in you. To be a part of the new covenant is to be united to Christ. It is to be united to Christ together as the one body of Christ. And so our unity then reflects the divine nature as manifest in Christ. It's directly grounded in Christ. Again, our union with Him by the Holy Spirit. 
and by God's own design is a chief way that he manifests his glory here on the earth. Again, remembering John 17 where he says that they may be one and in that display of oneness, the world might believe. So there's many things there that are a mystery to us, but nonetheless, that is by God's own holy word and design a way that he glorifies himself on earth. Ultimately, that will be realized, of course, in heaven. It's imperfectly realized here. Now, although this spiritual unity is a reality and it's based on the perfect and the person, or the, excuse me, the person and the work of Christ and the indwelling spirit, and it's a unity ultimately that can't be broken in its reality, it is a unity that can be broken in its experience here on earth. And that's why when we come to Ephesians chapter 4, which we just introduced last week, at the heart of what Paul is getting at is in verse 3. He says that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, our unity, our living together in peace as the one body of Christ is reflective of our peace with Christ, which is something that he mentioned earlier uh, in chapter 2. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier and the dividing wall. So this unity, then, is something that requires, or this, the, the experience of this unity, the display of this unity, is something that decry, requires diligence. It requires effort. It requires intentionality on the part of the people of God. It's preserved then through the diligent effort of each believer in the demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit. And it is the Spirit then who enables us to walk, as Paul says in verse 1, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Indeed, that, that is even as the family of God. Remember, he begins right at the very beginning that we are the elect of the church who are adopted in Christ, God's intention before the foundation of the world, and we are sons and daughters in him. Now, Paul then identifies, this is just by way of review, the, the characteristics by which we are then to pursue the preservation of this unity. And he says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. This is the means by which we are then to preserve this unity. Now, we briefly mentioned last week humility. Humility is foundational to this unity. And not only is it foundational to this unity, uh, Christians, as we noted and is obvious, should be the most humble people on the face of the earth. Christians are... Those who by the work of the Spirit have been made to see God in His glory and His majesty and ourselves before Him as sinners, as guilty, as condemned. We've had our eyes open to see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ and the atonement and the payment made for our sins. So we are a people who understand that we live, we exist, our whole reality is encompassed in the grace we've received from God. Totally undeserved totally at the cost of the Son, but we enjoying its benefits. And this kind of humility then that has those, that recognition of our total life being only in the gospel is at the very foundation of what it means then to be a Christian. In other words, there are no proud people in the kingdom. Now that's 
Of course, we all struggle with pride, but it is to say nobody comes to God with a proud heart. That is in the kingdom. That's why Jesus began in the whole Sermon on the Mount that what is the first beatitude that he gave that we must be what? Do you remember? Poor, I'll give you a hint. In spirit, right, poor in spirit. But those who are poor in spirit are the ones who are in the kingdom of heaven, poor in spirit. That's the very entrance point. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 3, that unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So humility is an essential mark of salvation and an essential element of preserving unity in the body. And we noted last week that it's a matter of dying to self. Dying to self. Again, the very, the very reality of conversion is that we exchange our life for Christ's life. So Paul could say it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That is the principle, the reality that we spend our lives pursuing by the grace of the Holy Spirit again in us. But we are then to die to self. And we looked at that a little bit last week. And we just introduced the fact then, which again, it's rather obvious that the greatest destroyer of unity is pride. It's pride. It is placing self above others. It is making self the priority rather than the glory of Christ and service within the body. Now let me just read to you one passage here. And we're, gonna, we're hitting all of these topics lightly, as I mentioned. We're not spending any in-depth time in any of it. But, but we're trying to get an overview here just to instill within us the importance of unity. The importance of how we're to pursue this. Uh, in James chapter 3, however, we see the negative side of this. Actually, we see the, the positive and the negative uh, next to each other. But looking at the negative first, the pride as the destroyer of this unity, he says in verse 13, uh, in James chapter 3, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. Verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly and natural and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. The very opposite of unity. And it gets even more intense in chapter 4. He says, verse 1 and 2, he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then he goes on and he calls them to repentance. And essentially in verse 6, the call to repentance is the call to humble ourselves to, before God. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So the greatest foundation or cornerstone in terms of our living out, the pursuit of this unity is humility. So Paul begins right with that at the beginning. This, this is preserved, this unity, by us walking in humility before God. The greatest threat and danger to that is pride, is pride. But where pride is being put to death and humility is being pursued, then there is what he describes again in James chapter 3, the kind of wisdom that is godly wisdom. It's from above. It's pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so then that introduces us to Paul's second 
character quality that he identifies here. Not only is it humility, but this humility is always attended then with gentleness. Gentleness. Look what he says again in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness. Gentleness. These two things go together. They go hand in hand. Gentleness then is inextricable from unity. What is gentleness? What does that mean? Well, the term itself is actually translated gentleness here and in other places it's translated as meekness. It's the same root word, gentleness and meekness. And there's two general ideas behind this term. One is, and this is probably what we think of first when we think of gentleness, is a softness of manner. It's the opposite of being harsh, of being hard, of being dictatorial, of being impatient and unforgiving. We've, we've known people like that who have a very hard and ungracious manner against them. Gentleness would be the opposite of that. It would be the softness of manner, a certain sweetness of character about it. That's the first idea of it. The second is that of power under control. And that's more often when it's in that context, it's translated as meekness. Meekness. It's power under control. It's not, not weakness, but it is self-control by one who has power, but is able to bring that power into the service of something greater. It's not self-serving, it's others-serving. As a matter of fact, it's been noted that this term and, and its other usage outside the Bible speaks of a broken horse, a horse that has been broken. A, a, a horse doesn't lose its strength, it's still that powerful beast, and yet when it's broken, it then becomes under the control of the rider. That idea captures somewhat the idea of gentleness or meekness, power under control. But of course, the greatest display of that is in the Lord Jesus himself. And remember that Jesus Christ himself, as the God-man, as the eternal Son in flesh, is the perfect picture of humanity. You want to know what we are to be as human beings, you would look no further than Christ himself. And of himself, Christ says this. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it. Matthew 11, 28 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, you could say that meekness and gentleness is at the very essence of what it means to be a human being, somebody in a right relationship with God. Here that's perfectly displayed by Christ. Christ. He says of himself, and he's the only one that can say this of himself with, in all of its fullness, that I am gentle and I'm humble in heart. Now capture just for a moment this idea of meekness then in Christ. And this is by way of reminder and I think really in some ways then we could say even the very songs that we sing about display this meekness in Christ, right? He's a little innocent child, totally yielded and needing the care of other human beings, two parents. And yet that little child was the eternal son of God, divine in nature, though also adding to himself a human nature that submitted itself fully or he submitted himself fully within taking on that nature 
to all of the cares and to all of the concerns and all of the needs of any other human child. It was a complete humanity. And yet, he is the one of whom Paul could say all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So this child in the manger is by his very presence a demonstration of meekness and of gentleness. And yet it goes even more because he who gave himself to be tried and judged by a wicked human ruler was the eternal son of God. And indeed that ruler who judged him, speaking here of Pilate, depended on the sustaining power of the one that he was condemning to die on a cross. So the one who was by his divine nature, upholding Pilate's very own life, is the one who was yielding himself to Pilate's authority and authority that Pilate had from Christ's own father. This is gentleness. This is meekness. And so it doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean weakness. It's power yielded to the purposes of God. It's true strength of inward character that is directed to service to Christ. In service to others. It's power that is controlled by obedient love. As a matter of fact, pride and lashing out and harshness is not so much a picture of strength. It's actually a picture of weakness of character. It's a picture of a smallness of character. Smallness of heart. Smallness of mind. It's exactly the opposite the way that the world would look at it. They would see the more masculine that someone is than the more they don't let someone offend them, right? They would attack back. Revenge, hate, arrogance, pride. The world would see those things as strength. Some would look at Christ and be offended by that kind of gentleness. Indeed, the Jewish nation was because they only saw their Messiah as one of unlimited power and the idea of Meekness was simply not something that they attributed to him. And so when Christ came as meek and lowly, giving himself up, they did not recognize him. And yet, this is to be the very character quality of Christians. And it is a necessary ingredient in us preserving our unity. Uh, One old writer said this. It's describing this meekness. It is to be stirred at the sufferings of others, but it is never moved to anger by another, by another person's wrongs or insults. But that being said, though it is power under control, though it is demonstrated in Christ by his own giving himself up to suffer by those who are far below him, it is yet a power that will demonstrate itself for the purpose of righteousness. And again, let me just give you this picture before we apply this to ourselves. The same Christ who yielded himself to men as a lamb led to slaughter is the same Christ who overturned the tables in the temple, driving out men with a cord. The same one who said, I am gentle and humble in heart is the same one who spoke boldly and without the least bit of reserve to the religious elite of the day, saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites who stood to them toe-to-toe and challenged them and exposed them 
and called them to account before God. The same one who was crucified is the one who will return in power and glory to destroy his enemies. So meekness is not weakness. It is, in fact, the greatest display of power. It is the greatest display of power, of character, of spiritual power. Let me give you just one other example here before we wrap up this thought. It's uh, actually found in the Apostle Paul. I mean, don't turn there. I'm just going to read to you a couple, of, a couple of verses here. Paul, who was writing to the Corinthian church as an apostle, the one who established the church by him bringing the gospel, indeed, as he calls himself their spiritual father. And yet, in, in his interactions with this disobedient church, and in many ways disobedient, they were also, Second Corinthians tells us, a repentant church. But he says to them, when he's preparing to come to them by another visit, he says in 1 Corinthians 4.21... He says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in... Well, let me back up there. Uh, He says that some, in his absence, though he had given them some correction, were in fact in verse 18 of chapter 4, 1 Corinthians. He says, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. In other words, they had a certain boldness about themselves in his absence. And he says, I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power... Remember what I said, arrogance is in fact a display of weakness, not of power. Arrogance and pride is smallness of heart and mind. He says in verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. He says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And again, Paul is simply saying here that look, you're emboldened in your arrogance not only because of my absence but also because of the meekness with which I act towards you but if you continue in that course I can no longer be meek towards you but display power display the power of the kingdom of God display the rod of discipline let me give you just one other just to illustrate this Playing on that same idea, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. In other words, in the letter that he wrote. He he says, I ask that then when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. In summary, it's simply this. To be, to act in meekness towards one another is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of the very reality of Christ's life in us. It is a necessary ingredient to unity, but it doesn't mean that we ignore sin, as we looked at several, about over a month ago. We need to address sin. Meekness doesn't mean we ignore sin. It doesn't mean that we roll over in the face of error. But it does mean that the character which we are, the, the characteristic of how we interact with one another is to be marked by a softness, by a gentleness, by a sweetness of spirit. And it's necessary to keeping unity. So, what does that mean for us? Well, it's rather obvious. It means then the manner of our relating to one another, if we're to preserve unity, needs to have the self control that does not respond in kind when wronged. 
that doesn't raise up in self-defense when offended, that doesn't become exacting from others who owe us in some way if we have been mistreated. It means that when somebody mistreats us, we can, by the Spirit's power, respond in kindness. It means that we can take from others who are of lesser stature than us spiritually, at least in our own minds, those who are weaker, and lower ourselves before them in order to build them up, not to place ourselves over them. It is to say that in meekness, we can relate to one another, as Paul will say here, with patience, with patience, even those with whom we most struggle to appreciate and yet confront sin with necessary. So this kind of meekness then doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't find some false sense of strength by being unwilling to be wronged without exacting revenge. But instead he says, this kind of humility and gentleness is patient, showing tolerance for one another in love. This is a patient person then. A patient, a long-suffering person. A person who doesn't easily give in to trials, to mistreatment, to affliction or to wrong, but bears with them in a quiet trust without a spirit of revenge. It's the kind of patience that gives room for repentance. One described it this way. This is helpful, I think. It's the spirit which bears insult and injury without bitterness and without complaint. Well, that's convicting, isn't it? It is the spirit which can suffer unpleasant people with graciousness and fools without irritation. If God has been like, had been like us, he would long ago in sheer irritation have wiped the world out for its disobedience. Christians must have this kind of patience then towards their neighbors, even the same patience which God has shown to them. You see, that's why... At the very foundation of all of these character qualities, again, is to understand the gospel. Indeed, let me just interject in the very framework that Paul puts this in. We are a people to understand, who are to understand that we have been called in grace. We've been redeemed by grace. Everything about us is, in fact, a reason for us to be self-abasing, to be humble. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, then, to think of ourselves in a way that is so high and exalted that we would not pursue humility, we would not be gentle with one another, we would be impatient and not patient, is in fact not only disobedience, but it's a denial of the reality of the gospel itself. And it's a denial of the reality of the patience that we need to receive from God moment by moment. It is really all part of this crowning reality that he mentions at the end of verse 2 that we are to show tolerance for one another in love. And I want to get to the end, so I'm going to go through some of these quickly. Love, then, is the very crowning element of all of this. It's that we love one another. Again, we've, we've talked about this quite a bit, but that's at the very heart of our spiritual life. You know, not only in Jesus summarizing the great commandments... But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the very summary of spiritual life, if you were to capture it in one word, it would be this. What do you think? One word. It starts with an L. 
love. 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 The whole heart of the law, Jesus said, is that you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Paul would say repeatedly in the New Testament, the whole law is fulfilled in this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. In Galatians 5, he says, the very heart of our freedom is that through love we might serve one another. Here he specifically attaches it to showing tolerance for one another, but the character of that tolerance is not gritting our teeth, complaining against them silently in our heart, but it is a tolerance that flows out of love. A love, again, that is again the very gospel. We who know Christ are people who have experienced the love of God in Christ. Again, these are just some gentle reminders for us. This idea of love is key to Paul throughout this epistle. Again, he says the very fact that we're in Christ in verse 4 is because in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself to the kind intention of his will. In verse 15 then, he says, this is the kind of love then that exists among all of you. He says, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all of the saints, a love that's overflowing from the love you've received. In verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, God rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. The very heartbeat of our spiritual growth, he says in verse 17 of chapter 3, is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What is at the very heart of being or knowing and being filled up with the fullness of God? It is to know the love of God. It is to know the love of Christ. He says in chapter 5 that we're to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. He ends his epistle on a note of love in chapter 6, 23. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Love, then, is at the very center and reality of our redemption. And here it is at the very heart, it is at the very center of our maintaining the peace and the unity that we have in Christ. As a matter of fact, he says in Colossians 3.14, Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Where there is no love, there is no unity. Where the love of the Spirit exists, there are a people who are demonstrating their oneness and their completeness in Christ. It means then that we are to pursue unity by pursuing love to one another. Let me read to you again from someone else. I just thought they captured this really well. He says this, speaking of this actually in Ephesians 4, he says, Love needs the neighbor and is dependent upon him. Why, you ask? That's my words. He says this, The neighbor, even the one who is a burden and whose character and behavior prove cumbersome, is more than just an occasion or test of love. He is its very material. In other words, we don't just see the neighbor, the person who annoys us, our brother and sister within the church who we're always wanting to walk the other way so we don't have to walk past them because we feel uncomfortable or we don't want to talk to them. 
The person we don't want to walk into the same room will wait till they leave to go in. He says that's not merely there as a test of our love. He's saying that's the very person that's to be the object of our love. That's the very one that we're to pursue. He goes on, love does not exist in a vacuum, in detachment from involvement in other men's lives. Love is always love to this or that person, love here and now. Only the man who deems himself lower than his most burdensome brother and offers his life in service to others proves his love in actions. Freedom for the other is the form and content of the piety proclaimed by Paul. In other words, love isn't simply that nice feeling that the Spirit produces in our hearts that we're loved by God. It isn't simply the nice feeling that we might have when we pray or think of another person. Love is something that expresses itself in the way that we interact with one another, in the way we treat one another. Love is that which seeks out another person. Indeed, the person that we find the most difficult to the love is the one that we most need to work on demonstrating love, not to avoid. Think of someone in your mind right now whom you have a hard time loving. Think of someone right now whom if you had your your own desires that no one else could know of, that you would avoid them at all costs. Think of a face, think of a name. That is the person that you are to love. And indeed, lest you think of how hard that is to love them, remember that you were that sinner. Paul has been saying that, right? That you are the one whom God loved, though you were dead in trespasses and sin, though you were a child of wrath, though you were guilty and filthy and walking in darkness, though you were under his just condemnation. It was you who were that condition and I who was in that condition when Christ came and gave himself for us and suffered on the cross. Can you in that knowledge, if you have tasted of that love, truly, truly then picture that other person as someone unworthy of your love, as someone unworthy of your attention? Indeed, what we need to ask is that God would change our hearts and that we would pursue that person in love. Paul says that is here then the very heart of how we are unified. How we are unified. That we pursue one another in love. In other words, we are to display Christ's own life and love in us for one another. There's a story of Florence Nightingale that's told during the Crimean War. Not the recent one, of course, but the, an older one. And the story goes like this, that she was passing one night down a hospital ward. You'll remember Florence Nightingale. She's accredited with really elevating the, the role of nurses, not only in war, but in general. A model of compassion. It says of her that she was passing one night down a hospital ward and she paused to bend over the bed of a sorely wounded soldier. And as she looked down, the wounded youth looked up at her and said, You are Christ to me. You are Christ to me. What a beautiful reflection that is of what we are to be to one another. We are to be Christ to one another. We are to be extensions of the love of Christ for one another. And as we do that, we will know a unity and a joy and a sameness of mind and will and blessing of God that cannot be known otherwise. This is what Paul is pointing us to. In fact, and I'll just mention this, In 1 Corinthians 13, he gives this great statement. 
After talking about the character of love that's supposed to be behind our exercise of giftedness, he says in verse 13, But now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why is it greater than faith and hope? It's greater than faith and hope because love endures forever. There is no more faith when we're in heaven, there's sight. There is no hope because we would then be realizing all of the the end of all of the promises given to us. But there will be love because love is at the very heart of the nature of God. It should be at the very heart of our fellowship. God is love, John said in 1 John 4, 6. That's not all that God is, but that is essential to who God is. God is love. And that's how the world will know us. So how do we preserve this unity? How do we maintain this unity? By pursuing walking with another, one another in humility and gentleness. Being patient with one another. Showing tolerance for one another in love. And in that kind of life and that kind of dynamic in our fellowship, we will know the unity that God has designed for us. In fact, not only a unity here, but a unity that reflects what we'll have forever. Now let me mention three others really quickly. Semi-quickly. But we will finish. Uh, having established this unity, Paul goes on to develop it even more. Okay, he moves right from this preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We looked at this last week. So that we might be a picture of one body and one Spirit called in one hope of our calling under one Lord holding to one faith, one body of truth, the doctrine of Christ, one baptism that we all experienced being initiated into the people of God under one God, one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He then goes on to another aspect of this unity. He's, he's dealt here with the character of that unity, humility, gentleness, patience, love, and so forth. But then he goes on and he takes it another step and he, and he gives three, I think, three general uh, pictures here of the unity of how we're to pursue that. And the rest of the epistle. And the first is this. Through the exercise of our spiritual gifts. How do we, how do we maintain this unity? Through the exercise of our spiritual gifts. Let me just briefly remind us of here this next section. He says in verse 7. To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of of Christ's gift. How does he build and maintain this unity? Christ does from his place ascended on high at the right hand of the Father having sent the Spirit by that Spirit giving gifts to his people that are to be employed in the service of one another. So it is through the exercise of our spiritual gifts. Now, Paul, there's a lot of interpretive issues here, which we're not going to get into because, again, this is just a broad look at these things. But he quotes here in verse 8 and 9, or verses 8 through 10, actually. Well, he quotes in verse 8 and then extends that in verses 9 and 10. From Psalm 68, he says in verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The interpretive issue is this, that he gave gifts to men is actually an applicational statement of what the psalm actually says. In the Psalm 68, he actually received gifts from men. That was common, a conquering king, a warrior went in, he took the spoil, he received gifts for his victory. And yet Paul here says that Christ, 
having led captive a host of captive, gives gifts to men. And let me just simplify that to say it was just as common for these kings to bestow gifts out of the bounty that they received from their victory. And Paul is picking up on that idea and in a sense essentially applying that picture from Psalm 68. Christ having accomplished his mission, having dealt the death blow in its very essence to his greatest enemy. He then rising back up to his proper place of authority and glory as the risen Messiah is here pictured as the one, the sovereign king and the ruler over all men, giving gifts, particularly gifts to those whom he has redeemed. And then he gives in verse 9 through 10, he ascended, what does it mean except he had descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he's also the one who ascended far above. Again, in summary, take that to mean... Speak of when he ascended to the lower parts of the earth after his death. He went down to proclaim victory to the spirits and so forth. I think the best way to understand this here in the most consistent way is to say that he descended as speaking of his incarnation when he came where he defeated his enemies here on earth and then he ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. It's speaking here rather of his completion of the work of redemption. But the main point here for us to focus on is that Christ is the sovereign Lord who in his lordship and in his sovereign authority bestows gifts on his church, on his church. And this is the sovereign power of Christ. Christ noticed as the one bestowing these gifts. And this is according to the plan of God. We already read it earlier, but in chapter 1, it's this Christ who is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. The one to whom all things are being put into subjection under his feet, who is head over all things, particularly even the church, but head over all things. He is the one under whom the Father in verse 10 is summing up all things, things in the heavens and things on earth. This sovereign, majestic, holy glorified, risen, King of kings and Lord of lords has given to you and to me gifts, he says here. Gifts. To each one of us, this grace was given. This grace to what? This grace to serve his body. That's the grace. It's an ability, yes, but the purpose of it is that we might serve one another. And it was given to each one of us, each one of us, as a member of Christ's body, at the moment of salvation, by the work of the Spirit, we each one receive a unique kind of giftedness so that we might serve the church. So each individual Christian then has a unique set of gifts that are necessary to spiritual growth, well-being, and the unity of the body. And so what's What's really, really a beautiful picture here is that it's not simply unity in diversity, but rather Paul's picture here is that it is the very diversity in this, the diversity of gifts, the diversity of people that make up the one body of Christ that is the means of how he promotes this unity, of how he builds up this unity of his body. Yes, we all are diverse We're all very different, and yet it is that very difference employed in the service of Christ that promotes the oneness. 
The diversity in this case promotes the unity. Now what does that mean? This is extremely practical. It means this in terms of the spiritual reality. There is no such thing as a non-gifted Christian. There simply is no such thing. If you have no spiritual gift, then you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian and you name the name of Christ and that is true in reality, then it means you have a special gift that Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, has given to you by his own sovereign wisdom and power. And he's given it to you as his slave and as his servant and as the redeemed to employ specifically for the purpose of building up his body. That means then... That because there is, no reality, there is no such thing as an ungifted Christian, there should be no such thing as an unserving Christian. Right? There should be no such thing as an unserving Christian. If you are not serving in the body of Christ, then it's disobedience. It's sin. It is, in fact, sin against the Lord who gave you that gift and who entrusted it to you. And we would be reminded, right, of the talents in the parable. I think that was Matthew 25. Could be wrong. But remember the parable of the talents? He, some he gave more than others, but every one was required, whether it be great or little, to employ what was entrusted to them by the Lord to the service of their king. In this case, it is the king who gave a gift for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, he mentions some specific gifts in verse 11. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And I think it's very possible here, in fact, this is a footnote, that we need to not focus so much on the office here. He's not talking so much about the office, although that certainly will be a part of it for those who have this giftedness, many of them. He's referring rather to giftedness, abilities given to the service of the body which will very often be associated with an office. But the point of it is this, and really the reason that he singles these out, because these are particularly revealing kind of gifts. They're they're truth-centered kind of gifts. And they are for the purpose, he says in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In other words, again, there is no such thing or there should be no such thing as a non-serving Christian. If you are a believer in Christ and are not intentionally and actively in whatever capacity God has given you serving the church, then not only is that disobedience and sin, not only is it stunting your own personal growth, it's also stunting the growth of others because we're members of one another. So when one person isn't serving and contributing to the growth of the body, it means that the body is weaker to the measure of that person's giftedness not being used. This is extremely, extremely important. Now, sometimes we don't serve or people don't serve because we think, oh, what, you know, what could I do? What is me? Woe is me. I don't have any great intellect. I don't have great resources. I don't have any great anything. I'm just this silent little unassuming 
Christian who's just happy to be in the building? What could I offer at all to the church? What could I offer at all to the growth of the body, to the building up of itself? I mean, that's such a glorious and such a grand kind of uh, purpose here is that we're building up the body of Christ. Well, I can see how others would do it. I certainly can't see how I could contribute to that. Does that remind you of a passage, by the way? Do you have one jump in your mind? I bet that you have 1 Corinthians 12 jump into your mind, right? See how sufficient Scripture is? It anticipates that kind of attitude. And in a somewhat parallel passage, Paul says this, words you're familiar with, but one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, so all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And that last little phrase there, I think, tips the scales to understand that he's, he's referring here to the one body that is in Christ. In other words, the universal body is the foundation of his argument here. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That certainly can't be limited simply to the church at Corinth. It's a reality for every Christian. We were baptized into one body. Though he is applying it to those who were there. But he'll also apply it to those who are in other places. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. The body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Now that's really, really important. Because sometimes not only can we think, what use could I be within the body if I don't have some kind of showy gift or some more obvious kind of uh, giftedness and abilities? What use am I? Or we may even be frustrated by the fact that we don't have the same gifts as others. But Paul corrects that here. And he says, whatever you have, whatever station of life you're in, whatever ability you have, whether it be great, whether it be small, whether it be obvious, whether it be subtle, is something that God in his infinite wisdom has given to you. And so rather than bemoaning what we don't have or what we wish we had, the instruction is to use what you do have and start serving. Start serving. And you go, what do I do? Well, I think a good place to begin, you know, you've seen sometimes those sheets that find your spiritual gift. I've never been good at those or like them. Maybe they've been helpful to you. But I think the one bit of counsel that I usually give, if somebody asks, you know, where do I, where do I serve? How do I do my giftedness? The, the most basic starting point is this. If you see a need, meet it. If you see a need and you have the ability to serve, do it. The converse, the wrong view of just getting so focused on what my gift is, is to go, well, you know, I have the gift of giving. I don't have the gift of changing diapers. And, well, of course, not everybody should be doing that, but we have policies. But the point is, is, or I don't have the gift of changing light bulbs, or I don't have the gift of whatever. The point is, if the light's out, change the light bulb. Eventually, as you have an attitude of serving, God, by his sovereign spirit, will place you to where you will be most useful to him. In other words, what should never come out of our mouth, and I'll just say this plainly, 
is that I don't do something because that's not my area of giftedness. And now, what I mean by that is this. When you have the opportunity and you are one who can meet a need that otherwise would not be met. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. So in other words, you should be serving. The very basic heart attitude of a Christian is to serve. Another piece of counsel that I think is helpful along these lines is you think, well, how then would I serve to build up this body of Christ and to maintain the unity is this. What do you enjoy doing? What do you enjoy doing? What skills do you have? What other things have you done where you found success? What kind of experiences do you have that can be lent to the body? Whatever that might be, it may take prayer. It may take trial and error. You may try, take trying different things until you find out what it is that you settle in. Whatever it is, the exhortation here, even indeed the command of Scripture, is that if you name the name of Christ, you need to be serving in the body. If you are not serving, then you are denying the reality of Christ as Lord in your life who has given you a command to build up his body and to serve others. And don't dismiss every act of service. We have one person, I won't embarrass them, who we call often the silent servant. Uh, This person will go in and will have set something up, served somebody else, called and encouraged, taken the most menial task, and you would never even know about it. One of the most quiet and unassuming people I've ever met. And yet they're also one of the most serving people. It's just a quiet servant. What do they do? What is their giftedness? There's no one great thing that they do. What they do do, though, is they see a need and they meet it. They hear of a need and they go after it. They think of a possible need and they make themselves available. That's what they do. And indeed, a gift of serving is, in fact, a gift mentioned in Scripture. So in other words... If you are a member of Newtown Bible Church, then it is because of your profession and faith and life that we assume you are a member of the body of Christ, and therefore we assume as a member of the body of Christ that you will be serving his people here, and you need to do that. So how do we maintain this unity? Well, Paul says here, not only do we display a character of love and gentleness, but we need to be active in serving one another. Serving one another. Find something and do it. Find something and do it. If you see the same need being mentioned, you know, six months, six years later, that might be a wake-up call to go, hey, what could I do to meet that need? What could I do to meet that need? That's how the body builds itself up in love. Look what he says in verse 16 of chapter 4. The whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In love. So, my exhortation to you is if you're not actively serving somehow, if you're not continually making yourself available to encourage, to serve, to meet a need here at Newtown Bible Church, then you need to repent, (laughs) basically. And you need to start serving. You need to start serving. If your whole idea of church is I go and I get fed and I leave, it is a denial of the one body theology that Paul is laying out to us here, that all the scripture does. So start serving, start serving. Let me give two just very quickly here. And I have five minutes to do this. Two more. And so I'll just mention them briefly. 
How else do we grow in this unity? We grow in this unity, we preserve this unity by displaying the character of Christ, dealing with one another in humility, gentleness, patience, with love, and all of the things that that entails. We preserve this unity and we build and we strengthen this unity when we recognize that we have, as Christians, been enabled by God's Spirit to serve and apply our service to the betterment of the body, to serve other Christians in whatever way that God has enabled us to do it. And each part is necessary, no matter how unassuming it may be. Another way is this. We build on the unity when we as a body are committed to the truth of Scripture. And he gets to that there at the end of this section in verse chapter 4. He says, as a result, verse 14, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, trickery of men, craftiness, deceitful scheming. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, whom, again, we read this earlier, but whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We are to speak the truth in love. And that certainly means truth as in truthfulness and life, truth in addressing sin, truth in encouragement, truth in exhortation, truth in all of those various ways, truth in teaching, But ultimately, the truth is centered around what God has revealed about himself and about Christ. What he says in verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, The church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What does he mean, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? It is this. The promise was... That God would reveal his will, both in the old covenant, but here particularly in the new covenant, through his chosen instruments, namely the apostles and the prophets, even the apostles. In other words, it is to say that he builds on the foundation of that body of truth wherein Christ is revealed and known and loved and trusted and served. So where there is a low view of the truth, there is going to be a low view and a superficial kind of unity. Where there is a high view of Christ and a high view of his truth, there will be deeper roots of unity that cannot be so easily broken. That's the idea here. Again, truth is, I won't go through all the verses, but it's central to Paul's whole ministry. It's central to the gospel. It is, we are those who have believed the truth. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 13, In him, in Christ, you, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So by our own growth in the truth of the knowledge of God in Scripture, we maintain our unity. A lot more to be said, but let me mention the last one. We're going to end here. How else do we preserve this unity? By pursuing personal holiness and corporate holiness. Personal holiness and corporate holiness. Uh, He says in verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way, speaking of the sinfulness, the darkness of the Gentiles. He says, if indeed you have heard him, have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, 
being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of, implied, God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then he just gives all of these commands about how we're to pursue holiness and interaction with one another. We don't lie to one another. We don't speak unwholesome words. We don't get, let bitter and wrath and anger reside in our hearts, but rather tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and so forth. As we pursue corporate holiness, we bind or strengthen the binds of unity. Sin, unrighteousness, and error are the greatest threat to our unity. We've covered that in the past, which is part of why we need to be willing to address sin with one another. But when we pursue corporate and personal holiness, we are pursuing unity. And the greatest reflection of this, of course, is that unity that's pursued in our homes. In our homes. Matter of fact, he sums all of that up in the great statement, much of that up in Ephesians chapter 5, to say that the highest and greatest human relationship on earth is that between a husband and a wife. And the unity that is shared within that union is in fact the very epitome in terms of human relationship of the kind of unity that the people of God have with Christ who is the head of the church. He says in verse 31 of chapter 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You maybe never thought of that, but we maintain unity in the church when we are pursuing unity and oneness, that oneness relationship in our homes with our children in the workplace. Well, that's just an introduction, but I hope that's an encouragement to us to realize that we are the people of God, the body of Christ. We need to pursue that. God glorifies himself through our unity. Pay attention to our character and how we relate to one another and be serving one another in love. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word and help us to live out these things by your spirit in us. And help us who know you to be more diligent to apply ourselves to the exercise of whatever giftedness you have entrusted to us to the building up of your body. Help us to see no task too great that we would shy away when we have the opportunity to meet it, relying not on our own strength, but your strength to enable us to do whatever you've called us to do. Help us to see no task too small or beneath us. Help us to see no person unworthy of our love. Indeed, that would deny the very love that you've shown to us who were profoundly unworthy and guilty who have received grace. Help our love for one another to be so palpable, so great, so obvious that it would be one of the first things felt and seen by anybody who would come among this body of believers here. Enable us to do this, to put away sin, to put on righteousness, to walk in truth, and to walk in love. To your glory, O Christ. We pray these things. Amen.